Let's open up again to Romans, Romans chapter 9. As we continue our somewhat in-depth trip through this book, although obviously not as never never as in, as in-depth as it could be. He's gained things through successive trips. How many of you have found how true the words to that song are that we just sang? Oh, love that will not let me go. And there's times where we think we've let ourselves go. It always comes back to God's grip on us. I love that phrase, I trace the rainbow through the rain. I doubt there's anyone here with much Christian experience who doesn't know what the writer's talking about. Precious words. I'm so thankful for the old hymns. All right, Romans 9, if you're there, let's stand. And I will read our passage this morning. Romans 9, beginning in verse 14. What shall we then say? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For He saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt then say unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? And shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom He hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Let's pray once again. Father, we pray that You would feed our souls on the strong meat of Thy blessed character this morning. Lord, be Thou exalted in our sight that we may be humbled before You, which is the only safety that we ever have. Thank You, Lord, for Your continued goodness to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Once again, we are in this, uh, what has been called the parenthetical section. Remember, Romans has three primary divisions. There's chapters 1 through 8 laying the doctrinal foundation. Uh, Chapters 9 through 11 dealing primarily with the nation Israel. And then it picks up with the topic of practical Christian living in chapters 12 through 16. I want to highlight again that uh, it seems to be a digression from what Paul has been talking about, but we've got to keep in our minds that a parenthetical does not mean unimportant or unrelated. 
I hope all of us have seen the logical progression that has marched uh, throughout this book and that Paul's brilliance underneath the inspiration of the Holy Ghost has definitely given us a masterpiece for grounding us in the Christian faith. I think it's very fitting that before we get to this section regarding practical Christian living, there's two very, very key areas that have got to be oppressed on the minds of us largely Gentile congregations. One of those is going to come up in chapter 11, and it's essentially, boast not thyself against the branches. And what he means is, be very careful in your viewpoint of God's plan and future for the Jewish people, and don't lose sight of the fact that your salvation as a Gentile came through their covenant as Jews, and God is not done with them yet. The second area of emphasis that's so vital for us to see is that although God is exceedingly merciful and ready to forgive, which He certainly is, we can never lose our proper fear and dread of Him as well. I like the way Tozer puts it, the Christian paradox of to fear and yet not be afraid. And what better way, I ask, to motivate the Lord's people in their everyday duties than to remind them of God's eternal majesty, His terrifying power, His brilliant, burning holiness. And how about what seems to us the unsolvable mysteries of His purposes? Now, there's a lot of tragedies in the apostasy that's infected churches all over the world in these end times. But one of the major tentacles of the tragedy in this apostasy has been a level of carnal familiarity with the so-called God of the Bible that seems to lose all sense of proper reverential fear. He's not the man upstairs. He's not your big buddy in the skies. This is not me and Jesus have a good thing going. He is the one before whom seraphims and cherubims prostrate themselves. The one in whose presence prophets and apostles fell down as dead men. And who even now, the redeemed saints in heaven cry out, Holy, holy, holy. Do well to remember Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13, written to God's chosen people. Sanctify, that means set apart the Lord of hosts Himself. And let Him be your fear. And let Him be your dread. You see, passages like the one we're looking at this morning are intended to remind creatures made out of the dirt of the ground of their exact place. The fact that there are some questions that we have a right to answer God. But listen, there are other questions you and I do not have the right to ask God. Or at least we have got to understand He is not going to answer this side of eternity. On this current earth and vessels of clay, God has been very specific 
about which flickers of truth concerning his person and works are necessary for right now. And I've said this many times already, but the Bible does not contain all there is to know about God. It contains what's necessary for you and I to know during this present time. You cannot press the eternal God into pages and ink, however you might try. So, we have got to accept the fact that our feeble minds simply do not possess the capacity to bear any more weight of divine counsel beyond what God has chosen to reveal about Himself. Last time the topic was God's national election of the Jews. And the primary context of God is God choosing them as a people group, as a, as a collective whole. And once again, this has got to remain sort of the overarching theme in our minds as we go through chapters 9 through 11. If you force every statement made in these chapters to apply directly to an individual, you come up with all sorts of theological gymnastics which do not harmonize with the rest of Scripture. Now, uh, this morning, there are some individual applications made. We're going to talk about Moses and Pharaoh, for instance, and is talking about them as individuals. We finished last time with verse 13. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And once again, that quote comes from Malachi, not from Genesis. That quote was written after they had had centuries to show the heart direction that both of their descendants have chosen. God did not arbitrarily consign Esau to the lake of fire. A careful reading of Esau's life shows just the opposite. Esau had every chance to turn from his wicked life, and he chose not to. And so any, anywhere in Scripture where we find the wrath of God poured out, it's a result of the deliberate choice to rebel. Remember Romans 1 makes that so utterly plain that even those without a written Scripture, it says, have no excuse. Because God has revealed Himself through the wonders of creation, which is sufficient light to make them look for special revelation in the Scriptures, and that he that looks will find Him. God has made provision for that. But once again, mankind's free will does not take away God's sovereign choice, which is a parallel truth. So here's what you see happening in the passages I just read. Uh, verses 14 through 24, it's a series of questions that Paul is anticipating to what he's taught. In other words, here's what it is. It's the natural human response to the doctrine of divine election. And oh boy, isn't there a natural human response to that one. By the way, this isn't the first time that Paul has anticipated questions. I mean, chapter 3 begins with a whole bunch of these questions. Let me begin by what's maybe stating the obvious. There's probably no topic anywhere in theology that's more likely to cause a negative reaction in the general public than the topic of divine election. Depravity is not popular. God's glory is not popular. But when you read passages like the one I just read, what is the predominant cry from a rebellious society? What is it? That's not what? Fair. Anybody ever heard that? That brings up question number one. Immediately on the heels of that statement in verse 13 concerning Jacob and Esau, Paul jumps right ahead and he says, let me answer what you're already thinking. What shall we say then? 
is their unrighteousness with God. What does the word fair mean, by the way? If you were to define it, it means equitable. It means giving to each part what is rightly deserved. Now, if you really know yourself, you don't want to demand from God that He react to your sinful condition on the basis of righteousness. Do you? I mean, keep in mind the only reason you and I don't fear that term as Christians at all is because we understand that God has given us a righteousness, not our own. Righteousness and justice are synonymous terms. God's justice is a reflection of His righteousness. Let me give you an illustration of this concept. Uh, most of us remember, remember Pontius Pilate's uh, tradition every year at the Passover? Remember what it was? Uh, make no mistake, Pontius Pilate hated the Jews. The Jews hated him right back. But every year in a show of benevolence or whatever to placate the Jews, to earn brownie points with them, he would release one of their prisoners at the Passover. Now let's just say for a moment that somewhere in one of those years, Pilate stood up and he said, well, I'm not going to be doing that this year. Now that might, that might make them upset. They could call Pilate a lot of things. But what they couldn't call him was unrighteous. Do you know why? Because righteousness demanded that every single one of those condemned criminals die a miserable death under Roman law. So the issue with Pilate there would be of whether or not to extend mercy to one or more, not one of righteousness with all the others. Do you see the difference? And listen, if a wicked Roman ruler has the right to exercise that kind of freedom in his subjects, how about the God of the universe? Now that's why Paul, though, answers the question the way he does. If you've been here for most of the series on Romans, you've heard this a number of times. God forbid... The Greek phrase meganoita, let it not be. It's the strongest possible disgust at the conclusion he's just mentioned. Ten times he does that in the book of Romans. Every single time he's cutting off a logical extension. He teaches something. He anticipates the response. And then he answers his own anticipation with God forbid. This is number eight out of ten. The other two are going to come up in chapters 11. But essentially he's saying, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And then he gives two examples of sovereignty displayed with an explanation after each one. So you've got these two men that are going to be mentioned, and really, uh, basically it's the hero and the villain of the Exodus account. He begins with Moses to prove his point. For he, God, saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Well, what's this point? Well, that comes from Exodus 33, 19. What's happening is, this is after the first giving of the law. Remember, the giving of the law happened twice because Moses broke the first tablets. The law is given the first time in Exodus 20 through 24. Then you have the golden calf incident, which we talked about last week in Exodus 32. 
And then just before Moses goes back up on the mount, he says to the Lord, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. I I had to wonder, I don't know, but what do you think the angelic response to that was? I think the angels cringed. Boy, Gabriel, this guy was off to a good start. It's too bad he's got to be vaporized. But God was apparently pleased with this request on Moses' part, and so He tells Moses, I'm going to answer your request. But here's what He says to him. I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Here's what He's saying to Moses. I'm going to answer what you asked. But let's be clear on one thing. I'm not doing this because you are Moses. I'm doing this because I am God. And Paul pulls that exact principle here into Romans 9 and says, let me make an application. Here's what it is. Human will or effort is never the basis of God's election. Look what he says in verse 16. So then it's not of him that willeth. It wasn't you just wake up and roll out of bed one day and desire something so badly and God has to do it. Or of him that runneth. That means an intense, strenuous effort. He says it's not based on any of those two things, but of God that's going to do the choosing. Now listen, that's true of nations, which is the primary context. That is true of individuals to salvation from God's side of the ledger. It's not because of upcoming performance. You know, something said, let me just flip back here. Most of you know this passage, John chapter 1. Sometimes we gloss over these kinds of things. It's a precious promise in John 1.12. The Jews had rejected Him. But John writes, But as many as received Him, or Christ, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. How do you receive Christ? Even to them that believe on His name. That's how you receive Christ. You believe. Look at the next verse. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, he's saying essentially the same thing in relation to salvation. He's saying this was not primarily birthed by anything mankind did or was going to do. God effectively said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Not because you are you, but because I am God. Now think about this. An entire race of rebels known as humanity which is justly condemned to eternal punishment if God does not intervene. And God infinitely condescends to extend mercy to the guilty. And the wicked response by Adam's children is not to repent and give thanks, but to use the very benevolence of God as a reason to question His character. Who do you think is behind that one? Old Testament example number two. The wrong side of the Exodus, you might say. He says, all right, I showed this with Moses. Let me, let me use a different example. Uh, you have Pharaoh, Exodus 9.16. And you can picture him 
Here he is surrounded by gold and pomp and splendor with all the... Uh, this vast and mighty nation essentially worshiping him as one of the gods. What he said was gold. His word was law. Remember, he's the one who asked the question when told to let the people go. Who is the Lord? Well, I'm not so sure he really wanted that question answered by the time things were over. Because he certainly got his answer. And so here you are in Exodus 9.16, right between the 6th and 7th plagues. Moses is sent to Pharaoh to speak these words to Pharaoh. And essentially, here's what he tells him. Not only is your kingdom about to be decimated, but the God that you despise is in fact the one who gave you the very throne that you occupy. And he gave it to you for two purposes, Pharaoh. He gave it to you to declare His power or to show His works and to show His name in the earth. Think about this. Let's say a mighty king walks down some pathway. Sometime later, you're looking for some evidence the king actually passed by that way. You could talk to witnesses. You could read written accounts, but... One unmistakable proof would be if you look down on the ground and you see the king's footprint. God is telling Pharaoh, you are like the muck on the ground. And do you know what I'm going to do with you? I'm going to use you to preserve my sovereign footprint. And all generations in the world to come are going to look back at your miserable existence and they're going to say God was there. Has that happened? It sure has happened. But notice the statement in verse 18. Therefore, he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Now, does that mean again that God arbitrarily hardens apart from human response? Again, we've got to take a detour quickly, I think, to the book of Exodus so we can see the account for what it is. I mean, if you look up the words harden and the word heart going through Exodus 7 through 15, roughly, uh, you get a pretty good picture of what's really going on. I think it's important to point out, first of all, when it mentions God's hardening, it's not talking about a direct wicked influence. You remember? God is not the author of sin ever. God never forces people to do iniquity. God does not take somebody and say, now you sin. And then I'm going to hold you accountable. That flies in the face of His justice and that's total heresy. God's hardening, listen, is a turning over to the direction already determined in the wicked heart. Once again, God's hardening is not God doing something to you. It's Him removing restraints. And that's all He has to do to harden you. We possess the seeds of our own destruction within ourselves. So, uh, what does He do in Pharaoh's case? You guys remember Romans 1, you that were here. I said it about 50 times. There's three successive gateways as God's passive wrath is showed by turning these people over. And what were they? God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them what? Over. 
And every one of those gateways is marked by a further departure from what he'd said and God removing restraints until they're turned over to a reprobate mind. Turn back to Exodus 7. Keep your finger in Romans. We'll go through it very quickly. Exodus 7. Now remember, Pharaoh had already had a history of the God of heaven and decided he hated his guts. Pharaoh was already hardening his heart against truth. So we find it in Exodus 7 verse 3. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. That's a prophetic statement about what God was going to do. But wait a minute, you go down to verse 13. And he, God, hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is right at the beginning. What's happening? I'll tell you what's happening. Pharaoh's rejection of natural revelation and the light he'd been given, here he begins by passing through gateway one. God gave him up. 7.22 So Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. That's just a, that doesn't talk about the agency. He just talks about what's happening. Verse 23 Pharaoh turned and went to his house. Neither did he set his heart to this also. He chose to ignore what happened. Okay, then you get to verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 15. When Pharaoh saw there was respite, what happened? He hardened his heart. Verse 19. His magicians say this is the finger of God, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Alright, so now apparently he's passing through gateway 2. He's given up further. And then you go to chapter 8, verse 32. Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. Chapter 9, verse 7. The heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And then you get to chapter 9, verse 14. I believe very strongly this is God laying down His deadline and saying, Sir, mortal creature, you're about to pass the line that if you pass, you're not coming back. And here's what He tells him. For, for I will at this time send all my plagues, where? Upon thy heart. And by the way, it's right before this third gateway when God makes a statement in verse 16, and very deed for this cause have I raised thee up. God's giving him this warning and say, listen, you're about to cross a line you don't want to cross. Let me tell you something. You're going to serve to show my heavenly blueprint for generations to come. I'm giving you one final opportunity. What does Pharaoh do? Chapter 9, verse 34. And when Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail and the thunder were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And from then on, every single time his heart is mentioned, God is doing the hardening. Now is that God just arbitrarily making him that way? Not on your life. But that is God's warning saying, listen, you persist that direction long enough. All I have to do is remove restraints to let you go that way. And I'm a God that's exceedingly quick and ready to forgive, but there comes a point when you cross a deadline. Pharaoh crossed that deadline and apparently became a dead man walking. He was turned over to a reprobate mind, basically insanity. You ever read the account and think, what was he thinking after all he'd seen taking his army into the Red Sea? God gave him up. God gave him up. God gave him over. You see, so it says back in Romans, 
God will extend mercy, but whom He wills, He will eventually harden. Now, Pharaoh's complicity, and it still doesn't solve every question, does it? And here's what I mean. There is no doubt that all men in history who have had their hearts hardened have been willingly willing accomplices in their own destruction. That agrees all across the board of the Scripture. However, think about this. Why are some turned over to this condition while others are seemingly given much more time to repent? And so it's not so much why does God condemn sinners, but why does He sow such long-suffering to certain ones? Guess what? He's not going to tell you that. So essentially, this is why the next question is going to be raised from the human standpoint. But what's the next question? Thou wilt then say unto me, verse 19, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? He says, alright, if the underlying reason for God to show mercy isn't the human will or determination, but a determination on God's part, how can God ultimately find a problem with people if they can't change His eternal counsels? In other words, is there a problem with God's reasoning process? By the way, that's asked because it doesn't make sense to me and you. But here's what's important to understand. First of all, the mystery element has got to be acknowledged that the limitation resides in the human mind and not with God. Secondly, I think it's critical to understand how God answers and how He does not answer. And I think this is one of the best places for an argumentative mind to come and demand of God why He's determining the things that He does. Well, listen, the overall context is national election. There's an individual side note here of individual purposes and things, but really you can make an application to other things. All of us have had questions like this. God's election doesn't just extend to a nation or an individual to salvation. Think about this. Why the government leaders He chooses? Why the oldest child in your family? Why the specific life circumstances you've been sovereignly appointed to? Young people, why the parents you've been given? All of those are divinely determined by God, and all of those, if we're not careful, bring us up to ask this question and say, why are you doing that? Why did you choose the way you did? Here's what happens in the Word of God, I'm convinced. This is kind of a paraphrasing of something an old commentator once said, but here's what he said, and I think it's a, it's a marvelous statement. He says, any time a frail human being exalts himself to some sort of semi-deity, and he begins to demand of God answers to the way he administers his universe, God generally arrays himself in robes of sovereign majesty and puts that pathetic creature on his face in the dust. And he does that all throughout his word. That's what he does. I mean, this is one of the central lessons in the book of Job. We often think of Job suffering, but I think sometimes we miss the bigger point of what's going on. 
Job really had problems deep down of how God was running things. He did. Uh, Job was the most righteous man on all the earth, by the way, which shows all of us are in danger of this sort of thing. But God sends these trials to bring these things to the surface. And Job's saying, well, why? 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 And what does God do? He comes to him at the end. Arrayed in those sovereign robes of majesty. And what does He ask him? Creature, where were you when I created the universe? Where were you? And he asks him a whole bunch of other questions about how things are run all over the world and in the skies. And he never does answer his question. He answers his question essentially with, Because I am God. God answers those kind of challenges consistently with essentially be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. And so he doesn't give an explanation of why God does this or that. How does he respond to that question? Someone says, well, why this and why that? Here's what, here's what God asks. Who do you think you are? He says, who art thou that repliest against God? Get out your treasure chest of all your eternal wisdom and glory and all of your mighty works across the span of the universe. Deck yourself like you told Job in majesty and glory. Behold everyone that's proud and bring him low. He says, take stock of what you are. Take stock of who I am and shut your mouth. Our humanity doesn't like that a whole lot. But let me tell you something. That is the scriptural answer for why God chooses. Whether you and I like that or not is irrespective. It doesn't matter. The answer is because I am God. He says, who art thou that repliest against God? I mean, you think, let's say all of us took a, a little uh, needle and we extract one drop of our own blood. You spend the rest of your life studying the wonders of that one drop of blood. Do you think you'd exhaust its treasures? And yet we puff out our little feathers and demand the sovereign king of the heavens that he owes us an answer. He doesn't owe you any answer, and he doesn't owe me one either. And the safest place for you and I on some of these issues is to say, he's God, I'm not, I'm going to praise him. Somehow we get the insane idea to demand of God explanations that frankly would disintegrate our minds even if they were given. Do you know that if God answered all of your questions, you would be vaporized? Do you understand that? Your mortal mind cannot even bear the weight of divine counsel. When God says no good thing will He withhold from you, listen, that includes explanations. And if it was good for you and I to know, He would tell us. But there's things that's not good. 
for us to know, at least on this earth. He says, shall the thing formed say against him that formed it? Why hast thou made me thus? I mean, you picture the scene. Here's creator talking to created. Roger and I build cabinets. I mean, I, I have often thought when I was woodworking in this passage, I, I run a piece of wood through and, and I sand it and I build this cabinet and I set it there on the shelf and, and here I am admiring my work and it goes, hey, how come you didn't make me two inches wider? I'd want to burn that cabinet. We see there's two problems with that. Number one is whatever's created doesn't have the capacity to understand. And number two, they don't have the authority to demand that. And then he says, Hath not the potter power over the clay? Turn, Keep your finger in Romans again. Turn back to Jeremiah 18. I, I really think Jeremiah 18 is what he has in mind here. Remember, God gave Jeremiah all kinds of object lessons. In Jeremiah 18, the word which came to Jeremiah, verse 1, from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, Cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. Back in Romans 9. So in other words, he's saying if a human potter has the right to destroy one vessel when it becomes marred, or to create a litany of vessels, all of which have a, a certain purpose, how much more does the God of heaven have that right? And who would dare question Him? And you see, God has power over and He has a purpose for both kinds of vessels mentioned here. A vessel, of course, we think of a boat, and I think in English, but it's an earthen pot, it's a clay pot. It's filled with something. And he's saying in this case, there's going to be vessels, if you can imagine, that are some of them are going to be trophies of mercy. They're going to be full of God's benevolence. And there's going to be others that are going to be filled to the brim with God's wrath. And he's saying, I have the right to do that. But again, it's vital we pay attention to the precise words that are used here. First of all, do you and I realize and accept there are people living on this earth that just like Pharaoh, God is keeping them alive for the express purpose of displaying His infinite power and to demonstrate His perfect justice when His wrath is finally poured out. There are people alive on this planet that fit in that category. We're generally not going to know who they are. But they're here. And God says they're here. In fact, it says, what if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. He endures them with much long-suffering despite what He knows will be their final end. Now, notice that statement. 
It's talking about the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. Now, if you just blow past that, once again, we come to a wrong conclusion. Okay, it seems on the surface to say God is uh, once again arbitrarily consigning them to hell. But let's pay careful attention to what's said. Okay, God's willing to show His wrath. And He calls them vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. You see that verb fitted? The tense or the voice of that verb actually comes across in English. It's not in the active voice. It doesn't say he fitted. That verb being in the middle voice is just making a comment on the fact of being fitted, not on the agency involved. In fact, the use of the middle voice very strongly suggests that this was their own doing to fit themselves, which of course fits in conjunction with the rest of the Scriptures. So he's not saying God did the fitting for them to wrath. He's saying they are fitted and God's response is to endure that fitting with much long suffering for the express purpose of pouring out His judgment so all the world will see His power and glory. Okay, look at the vessels of mercy, verse 23. You see the very last phrase? Which He had before prepared. You see, the Holy Spirit's very careful in those two verses to teach election properly understood, but not sovereign reprobation or the idea that God consigns them to hell with no part of their own. Friends, listen, that is not taught in the Scriptures. Now, I agree if God wanted to do that, He could. I don't have a problem with God doing that necessarily, although I admit it doesn't fit in my mind. But the the issue is, does He do that? Does He say that in His Word? And no, it does not say that in the Scriptures. I think it makes it very plain. Election belongs to the Christian. But everyone who ends up in destruction is a vessel of wrath fitted to destruction. They were working in harmony to destroy themselves. And every one of them was given light they could have responded to. But it says these vessels of mercy, verse 23, that He has afore prepared unto glory. You realize if you're sitting here this morning, Though your faith may be feeble, if you are one that has taken God's offer to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, it was not you willing it bad enough, it wasn't your strenuous effort to understand. It wasn't the persuasive brilliance of a preacher or teacher, but it was a sovereign God arrayed in robes of glorious and eternal majesty that justly could have condemned every single human being. And even though you spurned Him, you rejected Him repeatedly, and you did much to harden your own heart, and He would have been completely justified to turn you over to your own miserable state. He raised this scepter and He waved it over you. And He looked at you and He declared, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
Do we get that this morning? God did not save you because you are you. God saved you because He is God. That's the only explanation, by the way, He's going to give. And He will in the ages to come. Show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness towards you through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2. What's the proper response to that? More why? Here's what it is. It's a reverent, God-fearing response of humble faith. I think there's few areas in the Scriptures that illustrate better our need to approach the things of God as a little child. You ever notice you take a three and four year old? You could tell them the moon's going to fall tomorrow. And a lot of times they'll just be content to know that. They don't need to know all the why, they just know the who. Sometimes our littlest children can rebuke us so plainly. Sometimes we need to go back to the idea of being little children in the sight. And this is one of the areas where that's so true. And we let this truth sink into our inmost soul. It ought to make us cry out in praise and thanksgiving. You ever sit down and really ask the question as you examine what you are? Lord, why have you shown such mercy to me? Why haven't you cast me into destruction? Why when I walk through the graveyard, I see many younger than me that are perishing in hell? Lord, I know they they had a chance, but did they have as much chance as me? I don't know. Why have you displayed such benevolence to me, a wretch? His answer comes back to, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And that ought to put us on our face in the dust before the high king of heaven and earth who doesn't owe us any more explanation than that. Everybody sitting in this room ultimately is going to prove to be one of those two kinds of vessels. Either you're a vessel of mercy where God is storing and treasuring up His goodness upon you for ages to come or you are a vessel of wrath. And the message to every single person across this earth who doesn't know Christ is not about whether or not God chose anything. The message to the lost, if you're sitting here and you haven't trusted Christ, the message to you is that whosoever will may come. And if anybody in this room lands in hell, which I hope is nobody, make no mistake, it will be because you chose to reject the light 
you were given, period. I think one of the reasons people cling to sovereign reprobation sometimes is because they think that's going to give them some kind of excuse. You imagine people standing there at the great tribunal of God saying, oh yeah, well, you never gave me a chance. You think that's going to happen? Not on your life. There's going to be one speaker in that day. And he's not going to be made out of dirt. Let's give him the honor due his name. Let's determine as a church, as a people, as families, we're going to fear the God of heaven. Let's determine we're going to have the proper boldness to come before him. But listen, let's accept the fact that he doesn't owe us an explanation on everything. And that he wants to teach us to trust in him, to meditate on him, not on our ideas of what we think he should do. What a great God we have. And I thank Him. He fills our mouth with praise. And I also thank Him sometimes. He silences us where we need it. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that You do love us. And Lord, the greatest thing for us is to see Your majesty. The greatest thing for us is to know we don't need to be told everything. I thank You, Lord, for the answers You've given. I thank You for the answers You've not given. And I thank you, Lord, for responding the way you do to put us in our place. How can we ever have real rest of soul so long as we have any idea or any inclination to think we're in charge somehow? What a cursed place for mortals to occupy. Help us to take our place, Lord, before your throne. bow our head in reverence at the unanswerable and unsolvable mysteries to us and say, because you are God, that's all I need to know. I thank you, Lord, that your instructions to us will not cease in eternity. I thank you, Lord, we look forward to knowing more about our glorious Maker throughout eternal ages. Fit us for that time now. In Jesus' name, amen.